You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the fan of capitalism. <laughs> My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get emotional. Baltimoreans. Wow! Hello, Baltimoreans. Alan, what are we going to talk about today? I just, you know, this off season has been so slow. I, you know, here's here's the here's the here's the truth, Sam. I am still, I I am still deeply uncomfortable and waiting <laughs> for the other shoe to drop. I can't help it. Like, I, the 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 wonderful changes that seem to be happening at Orioles Park at Camden Yards are too much for my uh, battered Orioles psyche to take into effect. I just don't <laughs> believe it. What? So tell me, tell me what you're worried is going to happen. Because like, just to say your feelings are totally valid because you <laughs> have been like traumatized by the last several years of John Angelos being the control person for the team who has actively and overtly lied to us on more than one occasion about what's going on. So there's I, your feelings are valid. I just want to I just want to <laughs> let you know that it makes complete sense that you're feeling what you're feeling. I guess so first thing is I just assume that uh Something's going to go wrong and Rubenstein's going to look at the books and be like, oh, no, no, no. Actually, <laughs> this is not a good investment for me. I'm going to pull out. Right. right. Then I assume that um, Burns is going to be the exception that proved the rule. And even though he looks a lot like the Verlander signing in Houston a few years ago, yep. his arm is going to immediately fall off as soon as he gets to Florida and he's going to be on the shelf for the rest of the year. And then I worry, like, we're going in, you know, this is this was supposed to be the season where uh, we waited around for um, Bautista to get better. And are we going in too fa fast without our best pitcher last year, who was not well, well yet? Um, but then, like, we just didn't give up that much. For Burns, I don't know, Sam. I am, I am, I am all a tizzy. It seems like you have to really squint and look hard for anything other than the 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 most positive news possible coming out of Baltimore. Yeah, it, it's a weird feeling, right? It's a very weird feeling, especially because as tempting as it is to ascribe a relationship between the Rubenstein purchase and the Burns trade, it is very unlikely that those things are directly related. Like, a trade like that takes a long time to come together, and you know that the Orioles were not the only bidders for Corbin Burns, and it's it just strains credulity a little bit that David Rubenstein announced, you know, announced his agreement to buy the Orioles, which hasn't even technically gone through yet, and already is, like, picking up the phone to Mike Elias, like, make the deal, <laughs> you know, like... I no, but but it doesn't at all strain credulity to imagine Mike Elias, a man who is um, famous for valuing his own prospects very highly, mm -hmm. it does not at all, and, and who has said publicly that any trade that is prospects for talent is a long-term losing trade because mm -hmm. the potential that you're giving up, it does not strain credulity at all to think he's suddenly looking at someone like Burns and saying, not only can we get him in for the 2024-25 season, but we could yes. reasonably lock him up right. for some period in the future. Right. And that now the new owner gives me some some ability to go to move towards a sort of like yes. get people in the door, get them into our culture. Let's see if we can make the deal work long term. Yes. Even that though, seems like a different thing. 
even though he's a Boris, even though Burns is a Boris client, even though there's going to be tremendous pressure on Elias now to work out extensions with Rutschman and Henderson, who, by the way, is also a Boris client, mm-hmm. all of a sudden the idea that we can maybe focus on one of those at best goes away. And now it's like, why don't we just sign all of them to extensions? Yeah. Um, but yeah. but this is the thing, right? Is like, I think the Burns trade... And by the way, Baltimoreans, we're just super freaked out and our brains are melted right now. So we're going to be jumping around a lot here. So Yeah. Uh, also, it's, yeah, d- you just so ticket, everyone knows, it's, it's, it's Friday morning, uh, February 2nd. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> news has been coming hot and fast and Sam and I have not gotten a chance to talk about it yet. So we're all going to do some processing here. Yes. It's possible we will have signed uh, Jordan Montgomery to a four-year deal by the time we uh, are done with this Montgomery recording Burns. session. <laughs> so, um... I, I don't know. I just think like the the Burns trade is so much more indicative of the fact that Mike Elias is who we have known he is for some time now, even though it often frustrates us, which is a stealth operator who is studiously neutral in public, but behind the scenes is actually doing extraordinary things, whether those things are... Uh, inventing new math equations that help our prospects uh, hit the ball to the opposite field or picking up the phone and calling other general managers to swing meaningful trades, whether that's for journeyman minor leaguers who we're going to teach a new pitch to and they're all of a sudden going to become amazing or uh, former National League Cy Young (laughs) starters. Um, I, I think like one of the things that has gotten lost a little bit in all the conversation over the last couple of days with all this news is Elias has been doing such an extraordinary job since he got here in the face of overwhelming criticism and doubt. And if anything, I hope that the new ownership group lets him cook and mm-hmm. is like, look, you're obviously doing great things. We, you are now in a position to be financially unencumbered and, um, you know, if you need us to staff you up in any way, we will do that. Like, just don't worry about resources, but don't change what you're doing. Like, if they mm-hmm. just do that, they will be my favorite ownership group of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and we can't, like... Sometime during today's episode, I imagine we will have the conversation about, like, um, uh, let's not go too far down the road of trusting another billionaire. Let's not go too far. But, like, for the moment, I think you just got to stand back. And this is Alan Smith saying this, so, like, you know, grain of salt. But, like, you got to stand back and just appreciate that. John Angelos is no longer running the show because yeah. he was a long-term structural impediment to winning baseball. Yeah. And um, you know, I I have ended up feeling a little bit rosier about dad mm-hmm. in the long, like in the long calculus, in the long um, totally. run. But um John Angelos is a secession character, man, and he's and yeah. he's not even a particularly creative one. Yeah, I mean, let's do let's let's do a quick requiem for the Angelos era because I've been thinking about this a lot because I I we've not told the listeners yet uh, this Alan Smith, but I, I have a, a big year ahead of me personally. Um, mm. I uh, am getting married this year. And I am about to move across the country um, after living in New York City for 19 years. There's a lot of stuff happening that is really upending my uh, perception of myself uh, as an adult, which all of which is very positive and exciting. And when this news was announced and they were talking about the fact that the Angelos family has controlled the team for 30 years, I realized like, oh, right. When the Angeloses took over, I was 10 and, I do not have any memory of a pre-Angelos Orioles. Yeah, if I do, it's very I'd like I remember when the news, I do have a conscious memory of the news of the Angeloses 
taking control of the team was announced. I remember that. I remember all the excitement, you know. At the time, Tom Clancy was Cal Ripken. We were like, Tom Clancy owns part of the team? That's fun. <laughs> I mean, I say we. I was 10. <laughs> it's not like I was right. reading Hunt for Red October. But, um, you know, I have hazy memories of that. But basically, my entire conscious emotional life as an Orioles fan is tied to the Angelos family. And that whole approach is about to go out the window. Like... The entire organizational philosophy that has defined our emotional lives as Orioles fans, which you and I both have a decades-long experience of, it's all going to go away. Three decades, Sam. Three decades. Three decades. You lived in New York for a long time. The Angeloses have been around for much longer. Yes. So one of the things I have been thinking about with respect to Angelos the Elder, as you referenced, is... I think something that, you know, we have talked a lot on this show about how, like, there are things to like about Peter Angelos as a person, if not as an owner. There are ways that he has been resolutely pro-labor, even when it was not um, good PR amongst other owners to do that. Um, He has always had, like, a really high ethical standard for the way the team should be constructed. He made his money prosecuting, like... Uh, tobacco companies and I think asbestos, uh, irresponsible asbestos builders. He's He seems like a fundamentally... On the scale of one to billionaire. <laughs> yeah, he, he's a good man. I think all of us listening to this right now would agree that he was not necessarily a good owner from the standpoint of, like, building winning teams. Right. But I do think that he was always pretty straight with us. Like, we knew who Peter Angelos was. And, like, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of loved to hate him a little bit. As maddening as it was, it never felt like he was being shady or double-dealing. Sometimes he did cringy stuff, but it was always like, there goes Peter fucking Angelos again, like, doing the things Peter Angelos does. And it always felt very on the level. Even if we didn't like it, It was on the level. And a lot of the choices that he made, whether it was getting rid of Roberto Alomar after the whole spitting incident, whether it was firing Davey Johnson, um, whether it was getting rid of John Miller, like these were all things that were maddening, but we sort of knew the ethics of the man who they were coming from and whether or not we Hmm. liked them. It was like a known thing. And it always felt like he was coming from a place of like, this is what I think the Orioles should be about. This is what I think the city of Baltimore is about. And the choices I'm making originate from that. And then with that, I think it's also easy to forget a lot of the like very big ticket things he did do over the years. I mean, this is the guy who brought in your Albert Bells, your Palmeros, your Alomars, who brought in Mike Hargrove, who brought in Davey Johnson, who brought in Buck Showalter, who signed Adam Jones to that extension, who made, you know, who like approved the Adam Jones trade, like, um, is still paying Chris Davis, although no longer the most money on the team. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, like the Chris Davis- Thank you, Mr. Burns. (laughs) Yeah. The Chris Davis contract, an historic mistake, but you know- (laughs) I was looking up uh, yesterday, you know, there are other contracts, like the Prince Fielder contract, for example. Mm. That's another contract like that, the Ryan Howard contract. It's not as though Peter Angelos was alone in... Artie Moreno certainly could come in for a tremendous amount of criticism here. Like, Peter Angelos was not unique in sometimes making stupid decisions. But at the end of the day, it always felt like you knew who the guy was. What I think was so unnerving about John Angelos was that he was like, I described him in a conversation yesterday as a sniveling weirdo. (laughs) and (laughs) An evil chameleon? Yes. That's even better. Like, because he would do these inexplicably gross things and then wonder why he was being criticized. Yeah. 
those things were like like openly lying to us about the state of the lease, the financial realities of the team, the question of whether or not the team was going to be moved. And then he'd be like, why is everybody so mad? <laughs> yeah. It's like, are you that dim? Like, come on, man. I also think one of the true, like, and maybe this is always what happens with a second generation, but like one of the true cases of affluenza, like where you have <laughs> I've never heard that word before, like your 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 wealth has given you a true sickness and a true inability to relate relate uh-huh. to the rest of the world, uh-huh. um, is like this notion of um. The, the, two, two, the two sides of the same coin. One is the constantly crying poverty, mm-hmm. which this man is so clearly so far from understanding what that means <laughs> <laughs> in every walk of life, in every way, in every aspect. Yeah. And then also being unwilling to like actually like show us one way or the other what the books look like. Mm-hmm gives you this feeling of someone who is kind of like um yeah dealing from the bottom of the deck in a in a really um yeah. um unnecessary way <laughs> yeah and and with clearly so cravenly power hungry and then also utterly clueless about the nature of powerful alliances if that's the kind of thing if that's the shit you're into like he made such a big show out of how cozy he was with Wes Moore last year and you know making sure to appear with Wes Moore on camera and talking about how the you know the mayor the we have a great relationship and not the mayor the governor um we, you know like we have a great relationship all this stuff and then now it comes out that he didn't even give Wes Moore a heads up that he was selling the team. And Wes Moore in print today or yesterday was like, yeah, didn't know it was coming. And that's really disappointing because it's not what I was told. <laughs> and it's like, John, you, how do you work what do you that think is, what hard you think is happening here? to build a relationship with the chief executive of the entire state and then like stab him in the back on your way out the door like who does that who does that it's very strange and 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 it i mean it does feel like it does feel secessiony in so many ways but like yeah. I, I i don't think that i think i think your requiem for peter angelos there was fairly accurate and fairly decent um so i don't think he's quite the like father figure from secession but right, he's you, not you, quite you, a Logan Roy. <laughs> you, but you do feel like John is some amalgamation of the children because he he feels oh, yeah. like he feels like he's doing thing like what if you strip back all of his other motivations, it kind of comes down to a desire to be loved and adored in exactly the way that it feels like Rubenstein has just gotten Baltimore. Like, like people are putting him as their Twitter avatars. People are like, <laughs> really? the, the, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like everyone is like agog because he owns the Magna Carta. Right. Like, right. Like time out. He shouldn't own the Magna Carta guys, <laughs> but like, but like that, it is so funny to see, and I, and I feel like this is like a very Kendall Roy thing, like all of these like like four dimensional chess, and I'm gonna make this move, and I'm gonna make this move, and it's gonna yield this, and like it all just continues to backfire on him, such that it, there is such a vacuum on John. Yeah, there's such a vacuum of 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 respect that Rubenstein has shown us nothing. Like yeah. he is, he's he. There, there, he, he is. He has put out a couple of tweets, mm-hmm. and he has freed us from John Angelos. Right. And for that, he is he is feted as a hero. Yeah. Um, which is exactly what it seems like Angelos always wanted. Yeah. Well, and just to put a button on the the pathos of the John Angelos situation, all of the things that we have both just said 
are true. And then on top of that, there's the fact that according to a report in The Athletic yesterday, he somehow managed coming off of a 101 win season, a freshly signed lease and the most exciting core of up and coming talent the in the entire league, he somehow managed to get less than market value <laughs> for the team. <laughs> like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude, you are so bad at this. <laughs> well, I think 1.7, I think walking away with 1.7 billion. What did the team, what did the family invest? Like 173 million yeah, it, 30 years ago? It, yeah, it is a... Uh, <laughs> I can't do that math. Just kidding. Anybody can do that math. That's an insane return by any stretch of the imagination. Pretty decent. Pretty there decent. Are no, there are no tears for the ability of the Angelos children and grandchildren to um, be set for the rest of their lives. But let's come to the Rubenstein question now, Smith, because... Um, yeah, and, and let me just say, like, what a, what a weird thing that John Angelos has his hooks in me so much that we let off this podcast in which so many amazing, wonderful things have happened to the Baltimore Orioles. 101 win season, the best young core, the 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 number one prospect in the minors for the third consecutive season. That's <laughs> insane. It is. That is insane. The the, insane. the cupboard is so full that you know, like, like, uh, it was, it was four years ago when we were saying we're two years away from being two years away. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're here, and it's amazing that all that. Yeah, I'm still mad at John Angelos. <laughs> like, he, he gave he by any objective standard, I gave him no credit for this. But the Orioles are in a very good place right now. Yeah, and that's not just because they've been been acquired by a billionaire owner. It's yeah. also because they have an incredible young core. They have incredible talent up and down the roster. And now, suddenly, they have an ace to anchor a team that suddenly, from two to five, looks like a very good pitching staff. Yes. And, you know, I could I could imagine somebody listening to what we're saying right now and being like, well, can we pump the brakes a little bit? Like, we should give him credit for uh, signing Elias. I'm not even yes. sure we should do that. Oh, no, I'm not even sure we should do that, Smith, because the Elias signing was, what, five, six years ago at this point? I think five years ago. Yeah. And no, no, six years ago. And <laughs> when he signed Elias, he was still allowing his brother, Louie, to be part of the decision-making team. This is before mm. he, like, tried to, like, freeze his own mother and brother out of the ownership structure of the team. So I'm... Team Georgia and Louie on that one <laughs> without knowing any of the details. And <laughs> I'm very comfortable. Sure. I don't even want to, I'm not even going to begrudgingly give John credit for Elias. I'm going <laughs> to arbitrarily ascribe that to Louie and Georgia. Great. So. Bye, John. Le- on to Rubenstein. Adios. Good luck selling the, the tower you apparently now need to offload. Um, okay. Let's talk let's talk about Rubenstein because there is a lot to unpack here. There's yeah. a lot to unpack here. So you you go first because <clears throat> as we texted about a little bit the man has beaten us at our own game. Uh for folks who remember the origin story of this podcast is what if the Orioles were a community-owned enterprise uh with uh, Cal Ripken Jr. calling the shots. Well, friends, a man from the community has now purchased the team (laughs) and put Cal Ripken into his ownership group. So, well played, Mr. Rubenstein. Uh... (laughs) Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think that David Rubenstein could end up being a really, really good professional sports owner. Mm -hmm. And here's why. He's clearly a thoughtful student of history. Yeah. Like he has a history podcast. Yes. He owns the Magna Carta. <laughs> he writes history books. Yep. He supports museums. Yep. This is a person who we've already had the conversation on this airwaves about private equity. You guys can go back and listen to that. I find it very distasteful. 
it is in the bottom third echelon of how <laughs> billionaires make money, even acknowledging that billionaires are going to billionaire. But like from the perspective of what does it take to be a good owner in the professional sports leagues? One thing that every particular every sports owner always does that does not work is they come in and they say, I am a master of the universe. I am so good at all these other ways that I make money. Clearly that ability will transfer to this club. And new owner syndrome is always and forever like, I'm going to put my balls on the table. We're going to make some crazy, big, splashy free agent signing. We're going to do all these things. I'm going to step in and show you how to do it. That, I think... 100% 100% of the time doesn't work. <laughs> Maybe 98% of the time doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work. It, mm-hmm. it, 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 never, it never goes off correctly. What it seems like Rubenstein has done is looked at what makes good owners. And what makes good owners are people who come in, uh, splash some money around, but mostly set up a good team of baseball mind decision makers who have connections to the game, connections to the place, and are fundamentally like going to cover for all the things that he doesn't know about running a baseball team. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's the way he's managed in every other walk of his life. He is a very good... Like, this is why people, you know, this is why you you always said, like, you know, maybe Mike Bloomberg would be a decent president, not because Mike Bloomberg is a good president, but because he would hire the right people and he'd put them in the right places. He did that for New York. He doesn't need it to be, he doesn't need it to be the Mike Bloomberg story. And it it will end up, as a result, being the David Rubenstein story. It will happen that way. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't have to be the man with his finger on the trigger. Right. Um, he can trust that that could be Cal Ripken. He could trust that it'd be a former mayor. He can mm-hmm. trust that it'd be Grant Hill, whose father apparently worked for the team for many years. Like mm-hmm. the, the the depth of um, what I mean, who the fuck knows what's going on behind the curtain? But the appearance of a coherent team between David Rubenstein and the Bang mob. Um, to soak up frustrations, to uh, to give like to, to to carve out space and time for Mike Elias to work, to do all the sorts of things that you need to do to be a good owner. It really looks like the dude has studied that, and it yeah. looks like he has like been very thoughtful about what works in this world and system. And Absolutely. if that's the case, then I think that like he's going to just kind of get out of the way and be happy, like getting up on Twitter and being like, I'm so glad all these new Orioles fans are following me. Check out my podcast, check out my book. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm really glad that we're talking about all this stuff because I think the best way for us to evaluate the kind of owner that Rubenstein is going to be is to look at, you know, he has a substantial legacy, 74 years old. He's like a true Titan of industry. Um, like he's led a very public life in a lot of ways. So we have a lot of evidence to consider. And I think to add on to what you just said, um, the other thing that he cares about and wrote an entire book about, again, and has a second entire podcast about, is leadership. He wrote a book called On Leadership. I I think it's called On Leadership or The Principles of Leadership or something. Sure. On this podcast that he does for Bloomberg, uh, he interviews like innovative thinkers who are at the forefront of, you know, the most influential private companies in the world. And that tells me that he really cares about the type of decision making that creates impactful change. Now, we might mm. not always like the impact that the companies that lead the companies that he buys have, like defense contractors or um, certain pharmaceutical misadventures or whatever. Um, but just as a prin- a matter of principle, he cares about that stuff so deeply. Like he has dedicated his entire 
life to it. And that to me suggests that he has a lot of respect for what somebody like Mike Elias, who is an innovator by any stretch of the imagination, what somebody like Sig Maydahl has done, that tells me that part of the reason David Rubenstein wants to own the team, in addition to his own, you know, roots in the city and affinity for the Orioles in general, it tells me that he's drawn to being a part of this kind of forward-thinking organization that we have unexpectedly become. The other thing is... When you look at these questions of um, things like buying the Magna Carta, which is like very Montgomery Burns of him to do, we might not like the specifics of that thing, but the philanthropic donations that he has made, the purchasing of the Magna Carta, and then like loaning it out to the National Archives or wherever it is. Um, the I, I, let me let me let me just say vis-a-vis the Magna Carta specifically. I don't particularly have a problem with that. Um, I do like to imagine that he did it for some sort of like national treasure reasons and he is like using it. um, I mean, the Nicolas Cage movie, not the um, uh, useful, uh, (laughs) you know, keeping important (laughs) documents um, that there is something, you know, hidden in invisible ink on the back of the Magna Carta that he then used with his like team to go on some hijinks adventure in Tibet. But, um, I actually don't really have a problem one way or the other with, it, you know, if, if you're going to be a billionaire, I'd much rather you buy the Magna Carta or a Monet than I would you fund the um, uh, a super PAC like, like right. the uh, Koch brothers. Yeah. Um, I do find it gross the way in which the fetishization of wealth hits in sort of like our immediate popular culture. Yeah. Like I do find it very weird that like everybody it, it, owning the Magna Carta is no more or less to me in my own conception of it than like owning a gold plated Uzi in a like <laughs> you know gold plated lamborghini right. they are both just like absurd um conspicuous consumption mm-hmm. items that say that that but but the the ways in which like orioles fans are already being like i feel sorry for anyone whose owner doesn't own the magna carta i'm like that that's not <laughs> like right we, right we shouldn't end up as a society being like, it's cool that he had $20 million, $1 million to splash around on a piece of paper that has a, 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 a deep roots in British history. Yes, we still... Like that we, part's fucked up. <laughs> we, still, we still shouldn't fall for the trick. We still shouldn't fall yeah. for the trick. But I do think, like, that stated for the record, it does seem like Rubenstein, in the way that he spends a lot of his philanthropic dollars, um, which I think I'm sure is how he thinks about buying the Magna Carta, um, is he seems to be very interested in the sustainability of legacy institutions. Mm. It's something that seems to really matter to him to say, like, some things matter and should sustain. And if my obscene amounts of wealth can be a part of that, then that is what I'm going to spend my money on. And Does he look a little bit to you like uh, fat Steve Martin? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just I joking. also, from from what I have uh, like read and listened to so far, he does have a sneaky sense of humor. <laughs> All right. All <laughs> right. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, he cares about these things lasting. Yeah. And there, the it more... Seems. It, yeah, and the more we learn about this deal, the more that is sort of borne out in the way even the ownership group is structured. Like, it was reported today that a big part of the reason that he wanted Kurt Schmoke, the former mayor of Baltimore, to be a part of the ownership group is as a signal to the city and the state that the team isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why... Schmoke is there as, as mm-hmm. Schmoke himself said in his own words like I'm not there for financial reasons <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I am a public servant <laughs> I do not have enough money to invest uh, to at a very high level so like yeah that that's like you know 
obviously Ripken is the like headline version of that, but Schmoke is in some ways an even more, not to overuse this word, but impactful way for Rubenstein to show like this is about keeping the Orioles here and thinking about how they should be built and invested in so that it's never a question that they will be here. No, it's true. It's true. And and I and I, you know, I um again I I think maybe the Magna Carta is kind of a a specific point here, but to the rest of his very generous donations mm-hmm. um it does feel like uh you know he's he's interested in sort of things like um James Madison's home and the Washington Monument he's interested in the Library of Congress he's interested in but then he also has given money to um research for pancreatic cancer and he's given money to the Holocaust Museum and it 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 does feel like he is um he's a real he's a, he is a true philanthropist even as i gently object to the idea of uh philanthropy as a way to run a society yeah i mean <laughs> maybe the way we could say it is like if you got to be a ruthless capitalist turned billionaire philanthropist be like David Rubenstein, not like anybody else that we could name in that category. And his child was a co-chair of Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign in Alaska. Yeah, but that, that. What are you going to do? We, I don't know if we can put that on him though. No, um, no. And it's not like Alaska was ever really in play for the Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the other things I wanted to put to you, Smith. Tell me if you think this is too neat of a framing. Okay. But I think there are some owners who buy teams because they want to make money. And there are some owners who buy teams because they want to spend money. Yes. And I think the Angelos family wanted to make money. I I mean... uh, Certainly John. Certainly John. But also, you know, like Peter apparently told Georgia, like the idea here was to build the team up to enough value so that we could retire and enjoy all our wealth together. Yep. This was a money-making endeavor for the Angelos family. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Well, there is. There is. We for that that is the fundamental process of football club group. Just as a yes. as another aside, is that I do object to the idea of teams being fundamentally used as equity plays. Yeah. Um, and I find that uh, um. Not morally neutral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I agree, and I think that I think that every indication is that um, Rubenstein's the kind of person who certainly does not need. You know, anytime you're you're dropping, I, I understand that the value of sports franchises seems to be something that will go up in and in, in for forever. But we also know that that can't ever be true. So, like, nothing goes up forever eventually thing like all bubbles burst um and so if he was going just for the most sound fiduciary investment he missed the boat on sports franchises by about a decade totally um and so i think he's more in the like steve balmer range who is just incredibly wealthy and wants to invest in something and maybe has a bit of a like uh you know, I can do this better than anybody else, but um, it doesn't seem like this is a fiduciary uh, investment for him. It seems like it's a it's a um, a baseball investment. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's 74 years old. He's made more money than 99 percent of the world will ever make. He loves this team. He loves this city. And this is a guy who signed the giving pledge, is already planning to give away half of his wealth over the course of his life. He bought this team to spend money. And that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. he's going to spend money like a lunatic. Uh, I think this is where the student of history and student of leadership stuff comes in. He's going to, I think he's willing to spend it, but wants to do it in a smart way. But this is not about building his family fortune. This is about using some piece of his fortune 
in the most fun way that he can possibly imagine. That's my prediction. Well, let's talk for a second then about the shape of the Orioles coming into 2024. Oh, right. The Um, team. (laughs) The actual team that we presume we will see playing actual baseball in 12 days, I think. Um, Can't get here fast enough. The addition... So, okay, first, first question. Do you think that the Orioles are done? Or do you think that there is actually a chance that we're going to sign one more pitcher? And if so, what does that do to your Dean Kramers and your um, other, you know, nominal four or fifth, fourth or fifth starters? Do they all well, just go in the pen? I mean... I think there is certainly nothing wrong with entering the season knowing that at minimum you have Cole Irvin and Tyler Wells available as your long guys. Uh, One of them right-handed, one of them left-handed, both capable of working multiple innings. That's worst-case scenario, assuming no injuries. That's awesome because we were floated through much of the first half last year by Tyler Wells pitching way above his potential on an astonishingly consistent basis. Like, that's a big part of the reason that we were able to do as well as we did. And you don't want to count on that (laughs) for another season. I also think Dean Kramer, who last year was your number two, number three, now, and when he pitched at the top of his potential, was approximately good enough to be that guy, and when he wasn't good, uh, was tough to watch. Dean Kramer is a number... All of a sudden, Dean Kramer is one of the better number five starters in the league. I mean, that's that's a very, very, very good position to be in. Um, I think there is some reasonable question about whether... Bradish can sustain the progress that he's now made for a season and a half. And there's some reasonable question about whether Grayson Rodriguez can keep the momentum from the second half of last year going and whether John Means is actually fully healthy again and can pitch at something like his his previous heights. But the pressure on them to do those things just got a whole lot lower. Mm. Also, okay, so that that all makes sense to me. Um, I'm not a Craig Kimbrell believer. Um, so do, do you think any of those arms end up further back in the bullpen or trying to be repurposed to add to what was last year, the team's greatest strength, which was sort of like the fact that if we got to seven, we had eight and nine covered for at least a while. <laughs> Yeah, You know, Bautista's gone. I don't think that you can suspect that Cano will be the first half of last season's Cano ever again. Um, do, do we need to get any more arm? Do we, did we re-sign um, um, Japanese fella, the wild, the wild Fuji? man? Fuji? Fuji? No, Fuji, uh, the last I saw about Fuji is... Uh, a tweet that said uh, that his agents claim he has four or five major league offers. Not from us. I, huh? I wonder if that's true. I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think the Fuji era is probably over. Um, so then who's closing? <laughs> I mean, obviously Kimbrel is the like... You mean who's closing you know, when Kimbrel inevitably falls apart? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and who's the setup guy and who are our relievers and how does that all how's that all going to work? I mean, I think there's a few interesting things to look at there. One is um we're going to have Dylan Tate back this year, assuming mm-hmm. no setbacks. Um which takes a lot of pressure off of uh somebody like Coulomb who last year had to be was lights out for most of the season, but had to be lights out against lefties and against righties. Um, that put additional pressure on CNL Perez, who was great in the second half, but like took a really long time to find his footing again. And I think there's like a 
trickle down, trickle up. I don't really know which way the trickle is going here, but like the fact that ostensibly we can go into the season knowing that Irvin and Wells are the long guys in the bullpen takes more pressure off of Tate. So if ostensibly we're looking at a game, like if we just think about it on an inning by inning basis, we need to cover... At this point, we have five starting pitchers who I think we can most of the time count on to give us six good innings. So it's the seventh, eighth, and ninth that we have to worry about. So if the pitcher's able to get us through the seventh, eighth, and ninth most nights, just looking at the most, the, the, the guys that we've been talking about so far are Wells, Irvin, Tate, Perez, Cano, Kimbrell, Coulomb. That's already, that's a lot of firepower to throw at mm. three innings. Mm-hmm. And that's not even a complete list. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that's true. I, I think it is, there, there, are, there are a lot of names. No names stick out on that list to me like Bautista, but I guess no, you know, that, that, that was an otherworldly run. Uh, yeah. that, that, that's not something that you can account on for, for ever happening again. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I feel a little unsure about how we've done the back end of that. Is there any, there's no chance that Batista is back in this season. I think the whole idea behind the Kimbrel signing is to give Bautista a full year to come back, to to make it feel like if if by some miracle he was to come back early, hallelujah, but that there's no pressure on that. Mm-hmm. Just a couple other names I'm realizing that I left off the list I I just rattled off. And, you know, none of these guys are Felix Bautista, but there's also Brian Baker to think about. There is also... Um, Nick Vespi to think about, and there's also Jacob Webb to think about. All of whom, Mm. again, are not Bautista-level dominant guys, but, and again, not to keep overusing this idea, but, like, so much pressure. The the Mm -hmm. awesomeness Mm -hmm. of the Burns trade is, like, that takes pressure off the entire pitching staff all the way through to the back end of the bullpen. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think that, that I, I, I don't really understand the, the science of, you know, uh, who makes it as a reliever and who makes it as a starter. But you just have to feel like, let's say we do sign Jordan Montgomery and he's our fifth starter or he's in competition for our fifth starter. Then the names that you just mentioned that last year were starting get sort of repurposed. Those are all good arms. They're all live arms and they can maybe, you know. I think that it'd be interesting to see what Dean Kramer looked like if he didn't have to do the fifth inning. <laughs> yeah. Also, Smith, we're going to score so many runs this year that we're probably not going to need any saves. That's true. That's true. We're going to win every game by 12. <laughs> well, friends, uh, thank you for listening to this rollicking and only vaguely organized uh, <laughs> excitement festival. Um, we hope that all of you are feeling as mostly good as we are feeling. Um, last question for you, Smith, uh, before the real last question is um, no less than John Heyman uh, last night proclaimed the Orioles the American League East favorite in the wake of the mm. Burns trade. Uh, do you accept that characterization? I do not like it when the Orioles are favorites. Yeah. I much prefer the Orioles to be overperforming expectations. Yeah. Um, I think the team did get a little tight last year in the playoffs and in the run-in. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. Uh, I think it's probably accurate, though. I can't think of a team that I would say has a better chance just on paper right now knowing that the last three, you know, American League teams that actually made the World Series were not the best team in the regular season. But I, I do think that the Orioles are going to be one of the best teams in the regular season this year. Um, and I do think that, like, uh, just just looking at 
his mercurial rise so far, far, the addition of some combination of Holiday, Kowser, Kirkstad, and Mayo is going to be a lot of exciting offense to go with this much sunly, much pressureless, uh, or, 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 or less pressureful um, uh, rotation. Yeah, and I have to say my, my second favorite part about the Burns trade is that by trading away Ortiz and letting Frazier walk, um, it seems like Jordan Westberg has a clear path to taking the second base job, uh, and I think he's going to be really fun to watch over the course of Westberg's the season. good. Westberg's good, and and I think it's interesting that Elias finally did say, "Yeah, this is this is your job," um, and then we'll figure out where Halliday uh, fits into all that incredibly stacked midfield. What are these feelings? Uh, it's very strange. It's very strange. I think Baltimore is that you should twenty twenty four in America. What we we should we should give ourselves at least the next 12 days until Burns' arm falls off the first time he pitches in Florida, we should luxuriate in this optimism because it doesn't come around very often. Take it from two grizzled all-weather fans. Uh, this is a very strange and exciting feeling, and you should bask in it, Baltimoreans. Get out there. Bask Get on out there. Bit. Don't be a dick to other fan bases. We haven't won anything yet. Just bask. Well, um, the last question... Uh, as usual, is I think the most pressing one, Smith. And that would be, um, in this time of prospect bounty, I am, of course, reminded of uh, one of my favorite former Orioles prospects, Mr. Henry Yerudia. And I'm wondering what you would call him in an alternate universe where he invented uh, a financial transaction terminal that allowed him to amass tremendous amounts of wealth um, and then, in fact, went on to become part of the unlikely ownership group that now runs the team. I think you'd call him Henry Bloomberg Rudia. I think that's Bloomberg That's right. That's you're <laughs> absolutely right. <laughs> we'll talk to you again soon, friends. Baltimoreans.